Hello and welcome to the Parson Brown Podcast, where we talk theology, nerdy goodness, and even some pop culture here and there. I ask that you join us on this journey, have a good time, and thanks for listening. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to our first ever in-person and live Theology Roundtable. If you were with us here in 2020, we did a lot of these online um, and had a great time with those, but it's, we've always wanted to do this with a live audience in the room and with uh, those of you watching live at home and watching live later. Uh, we ex- we're excited about that. But tonight, we have a, sp- a special guest. We have a very exciting night. We're, we've been talking about Tolkien and the myth and spirituality within Tolkien. And while you think this isn't going to connect with what we're going to do, the next two roundtables, which are Christian ethics and inspiration of scripture, they do. Because each of these, each of uh, the upcoming ones as well, the authors of books, have, have attached ethics and attached inspiration of scripture to invitations to story. And as we talked in class a couple of weeks ago, about the tales and how we all find ourselves in a tale that goes way back, especially as a church. Very similar to when uh, Sam and Frodo are talking about the way that they attach to the tales that have been told throughout history of Middle Earth. The same thing for us. So um, that's what we're going to be doing. So upcoming July 12th is going to be the next live one of these on Christian ethics. And then the inspiration of scripture is going to be end of July, beginning of August, depending on our author coming. So, but tonight we have Nick Polk with us. Nick is currently serving as the production editor for Malorn, the academic journal of the Tolkien Society. He's a high school English teacher and has written various articles to, pertaining to Tolkien, adaptation, pop culture, and theology. He co-hosted the Tolkien Heads podcast with Trip Fuller from Homebrew Christianity and writes for the Substack Tolkien Pop, and he writes there on various intersections of Tolkien pop culture. And I'm going to tell y'all, if you really want to get into Tolkien, go to Tolkien Pop and go to the uh, Tolkien Heads podcast on Homebrew Christianity. You'll see links in the description of the videos for uh, Nick's link tree. And on that, it will take you both to, to Tolkien Pop and to the to the Tolkien Heads. Tolkien Heads was an amazing podcast that came at a great time because it introduced me to some of the deeper parts of Tolkien, and I was able to nerd out and geek out on that and find out some amazing stuff and, and awesome stories, and it got me reading the Silmarillion and some of the wider stuff from the Tolkien universe. So um, you can go to that. It's a, you can even take a class that was offered free to a million dollars. I think those are the limits that, oh, yeah. that Trip talks no about. So no more than a million dollars, but you can also do it for free. And, and I can tell you there's some great Tolkien scholars, some great lectures on video in that and some writing. And Nick features very heavily in that podcast talking uh, geeky about, about Tolkien himself. So, um, and what we're going to do tonight is if you have questions, Karen's going to, has the mic over here and you can raise your hand anytime you have a question and interrupt from up here. Uh, the panelists are going to ask questions as well, and I'll introduce all of us uh, since I've introduced Nick. But at home, if you, if you drop comments in Facebook, I'm going to try to monitor that, but we're going to be having so much fun here in person that I may forget about you online. So I'll try to monitor that. But I did want, my name is Brandon. I'm the discipleship pastor here at HCN. Um, and we would love to have you visit here at any time. Uh, we have a good time. Obviously, we do some interesting things. Uh, pastor Dwayne Harris is our lead pastor here, um, and he would love to see you here as well, of course. And then we've got Pastor Terry Hedges, who is our um, foundations pastor. Sorry, we have, we have fancy names for stuff. But Terry, Terry is also one of our adult Sunday school teachers, and um, he's, he's been a great addition, a great friend 
And, and all these, all the people up here have become friends. Nick, the most recent, but I can tell you, um, we're going to hear some great stuff tonight. And what I wanted to ask Nick to do was talk about something that captured my imagination during the Tolkien heads. And that was to talk about Tolkien's creation myth. So the things we don't see in the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit, the more popular things, are, are, is the world building that Tolkien did. So he built this whole world, a huge universe full of different ideas and things. And the Silmarillion is one of those pieces, the history of Middle Earth that his son put together. I mean, tons of volumes of that stuff. And people spend years studying all this. But the creation myth is amazing because Tolkien does something that's kind of intuitive when you, when you understand um, Genesis itself. He uses music as the mechanism for creation in, in the story of the universe of Middle Earth, and it's beautiful. And if you understand Genesis and its, its Genesis itself, Genesis 1 is a creation hymn. It's a hymn, so there's music there. So when God is creating in Genesis, that's a hymn of creation. And then Tolkien builds upon that with his knowledge and what he does, and he also does a, a beautiful story of music, of dissonance, and of bringing that into the purposes for what it was done. So I'm going to hand it over to Nick now. Thanks, dude. Well, thanks for having me, everybody. Um, I'm very excited to nerd out. The fact that there's people here who care and want to hear me talk about some Tolkien, just it makes me excited. Um, so before, how many of you have read Lord of the Rings or at least watched the movies? Raise your hand for both. Okay, or what about The Hobbit? Anybody read The Hobbit? Just The Hobbit, maybe? Okay, so if, if you're familiar with the movies or uh, the books, no matter which one or both, um, there's a huge history, thousands of years, and everything that happens in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings happens at, like, the very end of, like, the history of Middle Earth. Okay, so we're going thousands of years to the beginning. And so... It starts off, so the creation myth is called the Ainu Lindelay. It's 13 pages in the Silmarillion. This is mine. It's like my little Bible. I've got notes in it and all kinds of stuff. Brought it with me. But um, Ainu Lindelay translates in Elvish, which Tolkien invented, called the music of the Ainur. Now, there is, similar to our creation story in the Bible, uh, Tolkien's creation story begins with one god. So, and Tolkien's one god's name is Iluvatar, and Iluvatar basically sings uh, these spiritual beings uh, called Ainur into existence. And he calls them to join in the melody. And so each individual Ainur, which is just called Ainu, the Ainus, these spiritual beings, are invited. And it's almost like, I think I said, a, a symphony where somebody is uh, a violin player or a cellist or a pianist, and each one has their individual part to play, but then when it all comes together and harmonizes, it works together to create this music. And so uh, he calls them into being, calls them to join in in the music that he um, is composing, and in the midst of that, uh, there is a satanic character called Melkor who decides to fight against that music and decides to make his own music. And actually, he creates such a melody that's so powerful that the other Ainur begin to join in his melody. And so instead of stomping out Melkor or destroying him or silencing his music, Iluvatar actually incorporates the dissonance as Brennan had kind of hinted at into the melody and so kind of the music is this allegory to a certain extent about Iluvatar's plan for the future and the creation about um, what's going to happen in Middle Earth and so he incorporates the um, the dissonance into the beauty of the music and into his plan and um can I read like a passage, like a course, small one? Of okay. Course, yeah. So it just captures like what it means. So, sorry, everybody. So this is how um, Iluvatar um, incorporates Melkor's rebelliousness into his plan. So he says, um, 
mighty are the, the so Luvatar spoke, and he said, mighty are the Ainur, and mightiest among them is Melkor, but that he may know in all the Ainur that I am a Luvatar. Those things that ye have sung, I will show them forth that ye may see that ye have done. And thou, Melkor, shalt see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this, this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself has not imagined. So, before I ramble on uh, forever about this, uh, I'll stop there. Just uh, talking about how Middle-earth is then created, and the rest of the Ainur join in to help create what Earth looks like. Creates mountains, and the sea, and the sky, um, and all those things. So, yeah. you all have any questions? So what was, what would you say was the goal of him including the dissidents rather than putting it away or shutting it away? Yeah. Was uh, it? Okay, go ahead. Going. No, no, you can't. Yeah. Okay. So I think, so one of the things that Tolkien does is that we all have these, a lot of us have these big questions like if a loving God exists, why does evil exist, right? These big questions that eventually pop up. Tolkien explored these questions in his own writing. And so I think part of that is him wrestling with that question where he's saying the God in this uh, story, which Tolkien cites the God of, he was a Roman Catholic of the Christian faith as like a direct inspiration. Basically the God in Middle Earth is the God that he understood God to be. And so he talks about how God's plan can't be thwarted, but also um, allows for freedom. And so it's almost like this incorporation to say you're free, um, but my, it will serve, the, it will bring about the fulfillment of my plans. Yeah. It, it just made me think of, I was reading recently, probably on Facebook, that... Uh, Harry Connick Jr. was playing a song and during the song he realized that the crowd was clapping on the wrong time and instead of stopping and telling them to quit he actually just subtly changed into a different time himself which then allowed what they were clapping on to become the right time and that God is just so amazing that even those things that seem to come along that we would throw a monkey wrench he is completely ready for and ready to adapt and roll with us and say you know what okay we ate, we ate the fruit of the tree I, that's not really what I wanted but that doesn't thwart me I will continue to roll with you we will continue to walk together I'll continue to call, call you to me that's just what it makes me think of. Yeah, and what Tolkien does is that eventually some of the Ainur come down to, they basically, there's some that decide to stay with Iluvatar, but Iluvatar invites some. He says, if you want to participate in the creation of the world, you can do that. And so they basically sign up to go down and create the world. And he kind of does this like nature god thing, similar to like, uh, the Greek myths where you have a god of the sky like Zeus, god of the water like Neptune. And so they talk, and so Melkor is the lower G god of uh, extreme heat and extreme cold. And so if you see villains in Lord of the Rings, they're either going to be in Mount Doom, right, with the volcano, the extreme heat, or there's um, a guy named the Witch King of Angmar who had his. Uh, stronghold in like an ice like in the arctic and so one of the examples of incorporating this is that the the god of the sea uh starts complaining to iluvatar and he's like he's ruining my water and he says like he's ruining my water this guy what are you going to do about it and he says did you ever think that there would be snow or ice and now that melkor has basically, quote-unquote, tainted your water with extreme cold, now there's this beautiful thing called snow. And it it incorporates, in order for that to happen, for snow to fall and rain to fall, um, it has to interact with the sky. And so now 
the sky god and the water god, who are actually brothers, are closer together because of Melkor's, you know, evil actions. Yeah. It's almost God working good out of those things that we would call evil. Yeah. An example of how crisis and trouble can bring people closer together. Yeah. Where they weren't before. Right? Definitely. And maybe even come to appreciate the differences of someone else versus resenting them for the differences. Yeah, definitely. There's a, I can't remember where, but Tolkien says, there's a line somewhere where he says, evil will be good to have been. Not saying that evil is good or that the evil that happened is good, but that the, like you said, the, like, let's talk about like the hurt or the uh, tornado that happened right before the pandemic. How many, that was obviously terrible, but the people coming together and unifying and working together to, um, you know, rebuild people's homes or find each other's families is the good, the redeeming aspects of that negativity. I was thinking, you know, because I'd never read The Silmarillion, and during Tolkien Heads, I'd never heard the, the parts that were explicitly religious because Tolkien himself, and I, you all will probably notice in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, there's really no mention whatsoever of any kind of religion. I think the one thing is when the hobbits talk about eating, how they, they look to the West um, and before they eat, kind of a, as a nod to where um, all the, the good came, right? Is, yeah. So, um, but I think that it's all informed by both Tolkien's religion and the religion he, he puts within things like the Silmarillion. So when he's writing these, do you think that that's featuring heavily in the story, his, his understanding of, of the creation of Middle-earth and all those things are, are those things that are shaping the story itself. Yeah, definitely. So if you have read Lord of the Rings or even just watched the movies, if you read the Silmarillion, there'll be things that you're like, oh, these themes that Tolkien wrote here are why these things are coming to fruition. And actually, Tolkien wrote stories that are in the Silmarillion way before he ever thought of The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. So Tolkien was a young man in his late teens and was a war veteran for World War One, And so the stories in the Silmarillion, which are like the mythology behind, you know, like the more modern times of, you know, Lord of the Rings, um, he wrote those first in the trenches of World War One, And so it wasn't until later that he... So after he survives the war, he has a family, he starts having children. He basically made up The Hobbit to, as a story for his children. And he had a colleague who said, um, this is really good. You should write this into a story and publish it. And he did. Um, and it was so successful um, that they asked for another se- sequel. And then Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings. He had no prior conception or any plan to write anything like that and so in the hobbit he kind of puts pieces of his myth in the hobbit and then of course when he gets the opportunity to write the basically whatever he wants um he said i'm gonna i'm gonna take all this myth and actually incorporate the whole thing into lord of the rings including the creation myth and the religion it's just kind of in the background yeah i have a question yeah so our oldest son timothy he may be watching um, he's a huge Tolkien nerd, too. Yes. In fact, you, went, you guys went to college together. We, we talked did. about that briefly. So um, did you influence him on that? Is, that? is that how that worked? I was kind of a late... So I grew up with the movie. I was kind of a late Tolkien bloomer, so maybe not. He was probably more of a hardcore okay, Tolkien gotcha. nerd at the time. Yeah. So my question, that Timothy talked to me a while back about this, and he, he was talking about how Tolkien, when he, he saw the world, how he saw the world at the time he lived really influenced some of the things in his writings and he used the example of how war was so destructive and in Lord of the Rings you see the forest being destroyed and then at some point later on the forest comes back and takes their revenge what is that can you share some examples of that of how Tolkien saw his world Examples like that, where where it influenced his writings and the story, what was happening in World War One, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, just so good. Um, 
So Tolkien, I mean, Tolkien, all of Tolkien's stories happen with war as basically the background. There's just kind of similar to our own human history. Um, I mean, I think that historians have talked about our real history, that there's only been like 200 and something years in the history of humans knowing things that there was no war. So in Tolkien's uh, history is very much the same, where everything's kind of wars in the background. And so, um, very, and part of the reason why I think that Tolkien's work is so um, pervasive even to this day, almost 100 years later, um, is that it's very relevant. So Tolkien grew up in the countryside of England before, um, I mean, at the height of the Industrial Revolution, before, um, right before um, cars and planes were invented. And so part of that was he saw the modernization of industry being weaponized primarily through World War I. Um, most of Tolkien's best friends died in the war, had family who died in the war. Um, and so he had, of course, he was a veteran. He, got to, he saw people die and things like that. Um, and so he saw that as being a product of modern industrialization. Um, and so uh, if he's like you were talking about with the with basically the forest being destroyed by Saruman, who comes in and cuts down the trees, builds an orc army, that's kind of the allegory, the symbol for uh, industrialization. And then, of course, the ants come back and nature uh, basically takes revenge toward a type of a thing. But it's, it's, I think Tolkien is kind of talking about how in this day and age, or even in all ages, that humans are always going to try to dominate creation or use it to serve their own means and Tolkien's kind of he are his story is about working alongside creation which is being good stewards of creation type of a thing yeah I hope that answers respecting creation helping it grow and be healthy kind of thing yeah protecting it yeah very much like Genesis I mean we talked about Genesis very much uh, Genesis and God's calling for us to be good stewards of the earth and obviously there's things that we see with own modern war and things with uh, global warming that sort of thing Tolkien I mean that was happening at the time even when Tolkien was writing and it was very anti that yeah one more question and I'll, then I'll be quiet and no, I love this with so many people who are skeptical towards the Bible mm-hmm. in our world. How do you see God using Tolkien's writings through the Lord of the Rings to bring about themes and truths about God and his character and our in creation and our relationship with God? How do you see God using Tolkien's writings to perhaps reach people who might be skeptical to the Christian religion or the Bible in our world? Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think as, uh, you know, theology nerds talking about John Wesley, I think many of us or all of us are Wesleyans to a certain extent, and Wesley uses a term called means of grace and basically roots it in that creation is good. So God created creation, everything in it is good, and therefore everything within it has the opportunity to reveal something good about God. And it also can reveal something negative about ourselves in relationship to God and our and our neighbor. And so Tolkien actually, um, and you can uh, decide if you think this is arrogant or not, Tolkien eventually decided towards the end of his life that his work was kind of inspirational, inspired by God, not to the same extent that the Bible is, but he, he really did think that his work was inspired by, um, by God and was trying to bring a message about um, and I think that one of the things that something like Lord of the Rings or even other things, elements of pop culture can do is that it's a safe place for people to explore deep questions. And even in Tolkien's own lifetime, he was doing that. The, you know, the problems of evil, what about war, um, what about friendship, you know, how, how do you... Um, Love. What you know? How do you love um, those around you that you would consider your enemy? Those sort of things. Um, and I think those questions, and even some of the things 
uh, answers or um, values that Tolkien lands on uh, can resonate with what we would say is um, part of the Christian understanding of what being bearers of God's image looks like. Yeah. But I don't think it's just Tolkien. I think it come through other things like Harry Potter. Um, it can come through things like, um, you know, I'm a big, um, one of my things, I'm a big punk music fan, so I think it can even come out through punk music, you know, anything. I think it's interesting the, <clears throat> the different things within Tolkien as far as you know, the idyllic things for the hobbits. I'm remembering, you know, hobbits love things that grow and, and you see the relationship and longevity and then you kind of turn into Saruman and, and Sauron and it's all about power and control over others. And you see that, that theme kind of the epitome of all of that. It's, it's what they're trying to gain and how it affects those who see as innocent. So those, those themes are really interesting. Another one that was really interesting to me was the one who has been totally overcome by them, who has gone over to the dark and yet so much of the story comes about because Bilbo and Frodo were willing to have grace toward that character. Things would not have been resolved had they not. Talking about Gollum? Talking about Gollum, yeah. Uh, so I, I find that piece an amazing, an amazing thing speaking to Christ, speaking about loving our enemies. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Tolkien kind of makes this distinguisher between good magic and bad magic. And he says the good magic, which he calls enchantment, is working alongside nature. And so someone like Gandalf or even some of the elves, they are not dominating um, nature, but working alongside it to fulfill a um, cooperative purpose. And so then you've got the one ring and other magic, the bad magic, which he just calls magic, um, and talks about it being uh, dominative, right? Or is that the word? What am I saying? There you go. Yeah, manipulative, um, dominative. And um, one of the counteractions, so if you look at the one ring and when Bilbo and Frodo get it, or if you look at Gollum, it very much looks like addiction, and so Tolkien was actually one of the more earlier writers to use addiction um, because in his lifetime, psychology was a new field. Addiction really wasn't a commonly understood term or, um, or even concept for a lot of people. And so Tolkien brought this kind of addiction, and I think we use that a lot of times when it comes to sin and addictive actions leading to further and further use or further and further things. And we say that sinful actions or evil deeds kind of have this addictive kind of thing. And so he connects that to domination. And the reason why Frodo and Bilbo can have the ring, which is this addictive um, thing that twists somebody to want power more than anything, that they did not kill or do something to obtain the ring but come into it by accident or choose to give grace as you said Bilbo does not kill Gollum in the Hobbit and Frodo decides to surrender it and actually as people are fighting over what to do with it um, in Lord of the Rings at the Council of Elrond uh, Frodo says I'll take it to Mordor to throw it into the fire to destroy it which is the giving up of power like you said points to Christ going on the cross yeah. Speaking of power, um, Sauron, yeah. the big baddie, um, when we encounter him in Lord of the Rings, he's, he's been bad for a very long time yeah, and twisted, long time. The, twisted the world. Different things have happened. But you all see this book in the middle. It's called The Fall of Numenor. Um, and we might talk about Numenor itself because it's kind of a, like Atlantis. Um, Tolkien has such rich history. There's so many beautiful stories. But Sauron features heavily in the early parts of the history of Lord of the Rings. 
But at that time, he's not quite the evil baddie, is he? And he has very different intentions. So can you speak to to how he starts and what his intentions are, but how that gets twisted? Yeah. So early on, we've got, I told you all about Melkor, the satanic character in the Silmarillion. So he's like the original big baddie. And Sauron is, so let's say that Melkor is like Satan, and Sauron is, is a demon that basically comes under the service of Melkor. And so, um, but Sauron becomes his chief servant because he's the most like Melkor. And so Melkor is, one of the things that Melkor wants at the beginning, um, and when he goes to destroy what Luvatar and the other Ainur have created, is that he desires to enslave and to dominate and to destroy what other people have created. And so what Sauron does is that Sauron actually wants to order things, which is to, um, I know a lot of people talk about Genesis and the creation story bringing chaos or order out of chaos. And so we have Sauron kind of doing that at first, but instead of doing it in line with the Luvatar's will for the common good, um, based on a Luvatar's perfect plan for the world, he wants to order it in what he sees is best in his orderly, which is ultimately what corrupts Sauron and brings him to... So at some point in the mythology, spoiler alert, uh, Melkor is captured and Iluvatar kicks him out and puts him in this thing called the Void, never to see him again, um, and he won't come back. And uh, actually, he won't come back until there's a last battle, you know, in the end times, and he's going to be killed anyway. So I don't know if he's going to be annihilated or if he's going to go to where... You know, like the devil, after the devil dies, does he go to hell? I don't know. So that's, those are questions that are there. And, um, but Sauron is, um, later after Melkor gets kicked out, Sauron takes the place of the new big bad. And Tolkien actually says that Sauron actually becomes the more evil of the two because of his, because of the twisting of the ordering of um, things in his own image, which is, idolatry or a mockery of God's plan because everything is, we're made in God's image and everything is made um, with God's intention. And if you're saying, I want to order, I want to do what God is doing, that whole playing God kind of trope, um, it makes you the more evil um, as opposed to just destroying or even enslavement. Um, Tolkien basically puts mockery of God as a higher evil than even destruction. So, is that helpful? Does that answer it? No, no that does. Okay. That does. Who has only seen the movies? Okay. Um, something, something is really cool at the end of the story in the book. Because you know, in the movies it ends with Gollum falling into the fire with the ring. And then you skip ahead to, to Frodo going across the sea with Gandalf and the elves. But... In the books, it shows us what happens when there's been this terrible evil throughout the world and wars and different things. And when the hobbits get back to the Shire, it's a twisted version of the Shire, isn't it? Where Saruman has snuck away and has impacted the Shire. And we touched earlier on hobbits. Hobbits love growing things. They love gardens. Uh, They like to drink beer. And they like to have parties and, and eat, um, you know, first breakfast, second breakfast. They, they have several, several meals and several ways that their whole lives are, are kind of situated really around eating and gardening and having a good time as long as nobody from outside sneaks into their area. But when they come back to the Shire, it's Sam who has to kind of reshape that. Could you talk a little bit about... Um, how they find the Shire and then what they do to their home um, from there. Yeah, so early on, if you're watching the movies or read the books, the hobbits are in the Shire. They're very cut off from the rest of the world, very unaware of what's going on. Even people within the Shire, there's like three different areas. People who live near the rivers, people who live in the hills, and people who live like valleys kind of. 
and each of them are skeptical of each other. So they're even like xenophobic for each other. They're like, you can't trust those river people. You know what I mean? And so you get these people and now, and of course, if you even talk about dwarves or uh, humans, it's a whole different story. You can't even trust them. And so Bilbo is this weird character because he's friends with dwarves and humans. And so everyone kind of raises their eyebrows at Bilbo. But the Shire... Um, is simultaneously this place of like normal everyday life while also being like a place that is um, like a seedbed for good magic or good things to come. And so part of how Bilbo and Frodo can resist the ring is Tolkien talks about hobbits being rooted people and basically talks about like their earthiness and their attachment to the land and connection to food um, as being part of why they're able to resist and basically become the heroes that they are. So at the end of the story in the books that we miss out on the movies is that Saruman, after he's defeated at Isengard, so in the extended edition of the movies, he's stabbed in the back by Grima Wormtongue, nowhere to be seen afterwards in the middle of the movie. In the books, he comes back and takes over the Shire and basically creates it this like industrial, post-apocalyptic landscape. Um, imprisons hobbits, um, kills hobbits, and all that sort of thing. And so the main four hobbits, Sam, Frodo, Merry, Pippin, they come back, and of course they've had all these battles. They're heroes now. They basically come to come home to what originally they thought was going to be the quiet life, this paradise to what they recognize. Um, and it had not. And so part of what Tolkien talks about is that um, in order for you to be good stewards or have the things that you want, that you have to fight for it to a certain extent. Um, and cutting yourself off from the world or putting your head in the sand is not going to make you immune to the evil that is happening around you. Um, and so the hobbits come back and they fight. They end up, um, another act of mercy, they end up defeating all of Saruman's goons. Um, they meet up with Saruman and have the opportunity to kill him. Um, and Frodo decides to let him go. And it's actually one of Saruman's henchmen that ends up killing him and bringing about his demise. Um, and so Tol- one of Tolkien's things, too, is that evil is always the cause for their own demise. So everything that they do ends up bringing about their own end anyway, not so much the, um, the acts of others. Um, but so Sam ends up becoming, he's the Tolkien considered him the chief hero of the story throughout the books, but even at the end, he has like magic soil that he plants and it, the whole Shire gets basically... Um, Regrows and everything's rebuilt under Sam's leadership, and um, he becomes Sam is the gardener um, for Frodo at the beginning, and he's a humble kind of um, like a state gardener, and he basically becomes like the gardener, like the chief gardener of the land. Um, yeah. See if I have any questions out in the audience. Karen's going to bring you the mic. Okay. Um, are there other theologians that differed in the interpretation of the Lord of the Rings? And what would they be? There are many. Uh, lots of different theological interpretations. Um, so Tolman, Tolkien was a Roman Catholic. And so there are some theologians who would argue that if you are not Roman Catholic or at least don't prioritize Roman Catholic interpretations that you're not going to be able to understand the Lord of the Rings to its fullest. And to a certain degree, Tolkien really did intentionally or unintentionally um, a lot of his Roman Catholic faith is instilled in his writing. And so there are things that if you're not familiar with Roman Catholic theology or um, liturgy or you know, even cultural things, um, you might miss out on. So he even talks about Galadriel having direct, um, basically being directly influenced by um, the Virgin Mary 
and talks about how her um, beauty and the reverence that people have for her, particularly in the Roman Catholic faith, have, and Galadriel is very much inspired by that. Um, now, there are others who would say that Tolkien, um, and it just depends. You've got people who are more Protestant, who maybe a little more Reformed, say Tolkien actually reflects maybe more like what a Calvinist looks like. But then you've got people on the other side who say Tolkien's actually this you know, progressive theologian who has laid the foundation for super liberal views, which, and then there's other people who are atheists who say, actually, there's no religion in Lord of the Rings. There's nothing. So it really depends on who you come across and who you want to trust. Yeah. Any others? Okay, I have a non-theological question. I'm ready. This has just been bothering me. I haven't <laughs> read the books in a long time, but we recently rewatched the movies. And where do the Orakai come from? Oh, the Orakai? That is a fun, cool, nerdy question, and I'm pumped. Uh, so, <laughs> so if you don't know. Uh, Tolkien has these different type of orcs, and there's different type of orcs. So there's orcs, there's goblins, there's orukai. Um, and Tolkien basically did not settle on how and where they came from. So he's got different versions that he never settled on, where he wrote early on that they popped up from stone is one of them, kind of like similar with the movies, right, that come out from the mud, um, very similar Another one um, is that they're kidnapped elves that are tortured and corrupted is another version. Another version is that, that there are elf females that are corrupted and then orc males kind of mate with them and create orcs. So there's all these different, there's a couple, and there's like one more version that I can't remember. But Tolkien never settles. But the one that Christopher, so his son, Tolkien died before the Silmarillion could be published. And so Christopher Tolkien goes through all the notes and publishes the Silmarillion after Tolkien dies. And he settles on the orcs are tortured and that they um, mate with elf females to keep the population of orcs going. And so whether or not Orokai are like half men, half elves that are tortured, we don't know. Um, so whatever version you want, basically. <laughs> You're welcome. What, what do they... In thinking of spiritual themes, what do the orcs represent? Yeah, so orc is actually an old English word. So Tolkien was also a professor of like English and ancient languages. And so he focused on Anglo-Saxon, Old English. And orc is just an old English word that means demon. And so orcs are basically uh, demonic forces of Melkor and Sauron. So... Um, they're basically like uh, bad guy fodder. It's for the good guys to kill. So, yeah. Yeah. So where would you place, where would Tolkien place um, Gandalf and Saruman? So there, I had kind of talked about at the beginning how there are the spirits that Iluvatar created called the Ainur. So after that, and I told you about the gods, so there's after there's the spirits of the Ainur and there's like a higher being, so there's like lower G gods and there's like archangels. So the lower G gods are called Valar and the archangels are called Maiar. And Gandalf and Saruman are Maiar, which means that they're archangels. And so they're archangels sent by Iluvatar to uh, basically organize the kingdoms of humans and elves and dwarves to fight against the evil of Sauron. Yeah. Adagast seems very... He's a little... He's, he's, he's part of the same group, but he's kind of gone off and, uh, you know, decided to hang out with the, the birds and take off his shoes and live in a commune. So, you know, yeah. Hello. Hi. Okay, first of all, I have a pre-question to my question. Are yeah. you Catholic? I am not, but You're... I have lots of family who are. 
Okay, I was just curious. So I, my question is, basically, I was studying a little bit about, like, the Greek gods and Greek culture and how um, a lot of people say Catholicism basically adopted some of these things from the Greek people, like, from, like uh, as far as, like, uh, maybe some of their, I don't know how to, how to put it, traditions or um, not necessarily traditions, but kind of like maybe their, stru- their ideology, like the structure of how they look at things. And so anyway, my question is, if he was a Catholic, how much do you feel like that like, could have been influenced also by Greek mythology and Greek culture, maybe like as it seeped into Catholicism? And like, if so, is there anything that you feel like when you're reading Tolkien, you actually have reservations about when you're applying it to the Bible because of the difference in theology? Yeah, it's a cool. I love all the layers. I know there's a lot. I know. That's I the ADHD it. brain. Sorry. No, I love yeah. it. I also have ADHD, so I feel you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'll answer the first. So Tolkien, I'll answer the Tolkien. Is Tolkien influenced by Greek myth or Greek culture? Um, and the answer, short answer is yes in different ways. Um, Tolkien took various elements from different mythologies, including ancient Egyptian to Norse mythology to Scandinavian mythology to the King Arthur, all those different things and kind of put them in a story pot and let them stew and created his own kind of thing. Um, now, if we're talking about the Catholic Church and the Greek thing, I'm not super familiar with like the origin or like the interactions between the Greek Church, but I do do know that um, originally the Church, you know, the famous there's a famous schism between the Western and Eastern Church um, around the 300 AD um, somewhere in there, like 351 or something, and so the West Church leaves and the Eastern Church comes, and so. Eastern Orthodox, a lot of times shorthand is Greek Orthodox, right? And then we've got the Roman Catholic Church. Um, And then, of course, there's another split later down the line. We've got the Church of England. We've got, like, these high church things. And, of course, et cetera, et cetera. We're in a a Nazarene church. There's just a whole bunch of different things. Tolkien was very much a staunch Roman Catholic. And he um, was very much... He believed... He believed that the Roman Catholic Church was the true church. Now, Tolkien also believed, though, so he uses this metaphor. He talks about the church, the Roman church, as the sun, and he talks about other religions or different church denominations as the moon. And so the light from the moon is a reflection of the sun. And so basically talks about how the ultimate life source light source is the sun, right, or the Roman Catholic Church, or God revealing through the Roman Catholic Church, and that everything else is just a reflection of that. Um, so, he sa- so he would say that there's a possibility that God's revelation could be experienced, um, even in just, if we're talking about different church denominations, but even in something like Greek mythology. Um, but ultimately, it needs to point people to the, what he considered the one true church. Um, let's see. What was the third part of your question? Another. Yeah. Yeah, I think the caution would be to make one-to-one allegories or symbols of Tolkien's work. So a lot of people will say, like, oh, Gandalf resurrected from the dead, so he's Jesus. And, no, I mean, he, there's elements there. So he, you see, like, the return of the king, Aragorn, the one true king, also like Jesus. Frodo sacrifices himself, also like Jesus, right? Um, so we've got all these, like, Christ-like elements that are there. Um, but I think that what we can do, which Tolkien tried to avoid, was that he wanted to make sure that his story did not come to the same level as Scripture as far as he said it was inspired, but not, like, the inspiration of Scripture, um, and I think that bringing our own theological understandings where we're like, oh, I've cracked the Tolkien code, which some people, like I answered the question about Roman Catholics, they're like, oh, if you're a Roman Catholic, you cracked the code to understand Tolkien. Um, so anytime you think you understand Tolkien, you can find a random letter or a random piece of writing that totally just makes you scratch your head and you're like, what were you thinking? So anyway, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Speaking of allegory, yeah, um, and we talked about this last week that um, Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis were friends. That's true. Um, Lewis's Christianity is 
often attributed to Tolkien converting him, but, but Lewis, to Tolkien's chagrin, became a Protestant. He did. But Lewis also became an apologist, and his writings tend to be more allegorical in terms of a, um, trying to do a one-to-one, I would say. But Tolkien's are not, and could, is it partly their religious understandings that drove that difference, like Tolkien being more sacramental in terms of understanding means of grace and, and Lewis trying to prove things more? Could, did, that, did that influence the differences between the two's writings? Yeah. I think, it, I think it really is a difference between the Roman Catholic understanding and then Protestant. But Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's views really weren't that different from one another's as far as like, um, I mean, it really was more of like, Tolkien believed the one true church. He believed the foundation of the church and the faith was through communion, through the Eucharist. Um, but Tol- something that happens with Roman Catholic interpretations of scripture and tradition as opposed to Protestants is that Roman Catholics um, are less literal than Protestants tend to be. So Roman Catholics, um, if someone were to say, did Adam and Eve really exist? Most Roman Catholics would be like, maybe, I guess. Like, I don't see why that's important. Like a lot of Roman Catholics would. No, not all of them, right? Just, but most of the time, that's from Catholics that I know. That's not, the the important point is like, What's God revealing? How does God reveal that through his church? How is it embodied in our daily lives, particularly through the mass, etc.? Now, Protestants, without the mass and the liturgy that they depend on, or authority of the church, um, have more independent things. So, um, uh, Protestants depend on logic and reason. So, C.S. Lewis is very much, he's in Protestantism, he's in the Church of England, so he takes up that intellectual tradition and basically says that we need to make a clear, logical argument for God's existence, why Jesus is the one true God as opposed to um, other religions, etc. And so this comes through in different parts of their writing. Um, Yeah, and I just think that that's part of it, but I don't, yeah, I think like the world of Lord of the Rings is just so vast. It's such a big canvas that you can almost, I mean, atheists believe that there's, there's a scholar that I know who's talked about how atheists read the Lord of the Rings and have made it a part of their, incorporated into their value system. And some of it resonates with their own experience. And then of course you've got Catholics and Calvinists and all sorts of Buddhists, all sorts of things, um, as opposed to C.S. Lewis, which is really trying to get people to um, enjoy his story, but also come to um, maybe the Christian faith. Um, so yeah, it's just the different intentions between as well. Yeah. Any more questions? Thanks for coming. Thanks uh, for having me. Uh, I, I don't think in my mind that Tolkien was writing these books to become movies yeah. at the time. And of course, when you read a book, you're painting pictures in your own mind. And I read before I saw, and um, I just want your perspective on the uh, impact of the movies on the books, and and um, that this movie could any of these movies could be made another forty years from now, especially with the advancements in AI, and you know they're going to be more spectacular visually, but. Is that the picture that Tolkien wants to paint in our minds? That's an awesome question. Uh, So the short answer I would say, is that the picture that Tolkien wants to paint in our minds? I would say no. The short answer. So Tolkien has a theory, and he even talks about how he thinks that writing is the superior form of medium for art because, like you said, you can write tree, right? And we all know what a tree is, but each of us have an individual picture of what a tree, the ideal tree would be, right? And so Tolkien says that's super important where there's this universality but also individualization that can be experienced through this writing. And so one of the things he talks about with theater or different things is that, or even um, paintings, is that you're limited to that vision. And when you've got 
So I was not, I grew up seeing the movies first and did not read. So when I think of Gandalf, it's Ian McKellen from the Lord of the Rings movies, right? That's my Gandalf. And so um, I think that, so in Christopher Tolkien was alive when those came out and he said that he didn't like those movies and that his dad wouldn't have because it was more action-packed and Tolkien there's like a famous letter where somebody actually sends a script to him and he says hey I want to acquire the rights for the book Um, I want to make this movie Um, and this is like in the 70s or late 60s or something and Tolkien basically writes this giant letter critiquing it and tears it apart and then he puts it aside and writes a more polite letter that just says, like, no, thank you. Um, uh, But I think that, similarly, that Tolkien would probably have not been a fan of the movies, um, even the animated ones from the 70s, um, as well as even the show The Rings of Power, not because that of the creativity or things, but just because of their limiting... They're just, they just limit things and don't capture everything that Tolkien was trying to do with, um, with his writing. Yeah. As, as we come to our, near the end of our time here, I was going to ask, is there anything that you would want to tell people about Tolkien, about um, the stories, the books, the wider histories, anything that you think is important to know that they may not know? Yeah. I think one is that don't take it lightly. One of the things that is so influential to me in my own experience and why I love Tolkien and his work so much is that in college I was studying to be a minister at the time and so I went through like the kind of classic coming of age crisis of faith thing where I was like, do I believe in God? Do I believe in anything? Um, I was not a great student, so there was just lots of things. Um, I mean, I had met my wife at the time and just like the future, what was my job going to be like, etc. And um, during that time, I had kind of read Lord of the Rings for the first time. And then reading it, there was this like weird sense of like everything kind of clicking in the right way if that makes sense of peace and so there was and I can't really explain it um, but it just made me feel more at ease and if you want to say the plan that God had for my life and to rest in that or in the music if you will Um, and so I think that that can happen so I think that there is um, there's always there's always something for everybody when it comes to Tolkien too. So whether it's movies, you don't have to read the books, whether it's shows or video games, um, if, or if you want to be a book nerd. But at the same time, I think too, we talked about the means of grace earlier as well. And I think that there is um, spiritual weight to the Lord of the Rings, no matter what faith background you come from. And I think that I, uh, I, I would recommend it highly to anybody um, who wants to deepen uh, their own, even just human experience. So, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Um, I'm going to ask Pastor Terry to close us in prayer, and then we'll we'll have a few closing remarks and stuff for tonight. Um, but, Pastor, could you go ahead and close us? Father, we thank you so much that we know you, that we know you through your Son, but we know through him that you are at work in everything. You are at work revealing yourself through Tolkien's work. Father, that that's just a blessing. And I ask that you would open our eyes to all that you're doing, whether it be through Tolkien or something else, that we would see you ever more clearly. We thank you for this evening, for the words that have been spoken, and... Father, for our loved visitor, who I claim as my good friend, we praise you, and we say all these things in the name and the understanding of the character of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank of y'all watching later and here live. Um, let's definitely give it up for Nick. Um,
when uh, when I was watching Talking Heads, um, he and I started interacting on Twitter. We found out we lived in the same place, essentially, and uh, started connecting. And I was already thinking of what we were going to be doing this summer, um, that I wanted to do something differently. Christy had said, hey, you know, you really want to do those roundtables. You, you wanted to do those live. You wanted to have a good time with people. And the first thought was, I'm going to ask Nick if he'll come and talk to Tolkien, talk about Tolkien to us. And he said, yes. <laughs> and uh, the, other, the other two that are coming that we'll talk about later also said yes for a lot of the same reasons because the things we talk about here um, – we're often passionate about them, you know, and we, and, and all of us have passions in our lives that we connect with, with the other passions in our lives. And when we come to know other people, we often connect to their passions as well. And, um, it's, it's a lot like the story of the church where we're telling a story that should infect us enough that we want to draw others into that same story. And I hope you saw the passion that Nick was telling on the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien himself of, of how infectious that can be. And it's those beautiful stories that we tell. It's the stories um, of beauty, of, of transformation, and of, of relationship that we have with one another, with God, that actually draw us into um, something that can change our world. Um, we talk a lot about changing the world, and, you know, Tolkien changed our world in a lot of ways. Um, there's so much influence on things. Uh, I was watching Clerks 3. Anybody know Kevin Smith and the Clerks thing? Yeah, Christy's shaking her head. <laughs> Even in that universe, there's, there's a, a story where two characters are talking about the tales we tell. And it's very similar to the passage we read two weeks ago between Sam and Frodo understanding that there is this story ongoing and being written. And that um, in this one, it was, uh, one of the things, one, one of the characters had actually passed away. So it was, it was in a dream sequence. And she's telling um, the per, her former husband, who's still alive, she goes, you're still alive. Your story is still being written. You can still turn the page. Mine ended but I hope that what I did influenced you enough that you can move on to the next page. Um, I've, you know, you connect it to Star Trek. I mean, I wrote a blog post recently about how Tolkien, you can see those same themes. But it's these grand themes of humanity, the themes of, of story, of who we are, of who we are together, and who we can be that influences us and, and draws us into a better story. And I hope that's what we do as Christians. I hope we tell a better story. Um, I hope we're not trying to just shine the light on the Saurons and the ugliness and the orcs, but that we're telling the beautiful stories of the Shire and the gardens and the friendships and the deep and abiding relationships that we have with one another and the connections that we all have through life. And, and I hope that's what we're doing. Um, and as we embark on this the rest of the summer, I hope that we remember this, of what we learned here about Tolkien and about telling stories, because while, it's, while some of these other subjects like ethics and inspiration of scripture may seem dry, they're inviting us into the very same thing, a way of living in community and relationship and being able to love one another and love God and love this world such that we can transform it to be a better place. So... Thank you so much for coming out. I'm so thankful to have met this guy and so thankful that he was willing to come and talk to us about Tolkien. And um, appreciate each of you that came, those of you watching online. I hope, I hope everybody gets something out of this. Just take away the beauty, that beauty will save the world. Something I want you to remember. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Parson Brown Podcast. I hope you enjoyed what you've heard, and if you did, please subscribe. Thanks for joining us on this journey.